Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I'm here today with Tanya Shadrick and we are talking about her book which is out next year. It's called The Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life and it's out on Wendell Field and Nicholson Um, and we're going to be talking about the book in a tiny second. Um, Firstly it's just me today talking to Tanya and obviously we will have lots to talk about. Penny isn't here because it's half term and we can't always do everything. So um, Tanya, hi, it's lovely to have you. Hello, Ali. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's lovely to have you. Um, So I've seen little snippets of your book and little extracts and bits about what you've been doing and what you're working on on Instagram, but I don't really know very much more than that. So can you tell me about the book? Okay, thank you. Thank you for asking. Um, So, yeah, it's called The Cure for Sleep, A Late Waking Life, and it is it's a whole life memoir rather than a single theme but it is um it's constellated around the fact that I almost died very suddenly in minutes without any pain or warning when I was 33 two weeks after the birth of my first child and and I've read some of your work and I think you had something similar happen to you so I had a very late postpartum hemorrhage Mm. um I signed off by the midwife that morning um and the only thing she said to me are you okay and the one thing I said was I feel like I'm running too fast like an engine running too fast I don't feel like the other women who I've met and she said oh what would normal be and off she popped and and then that afternoon I you know reached for a book from the bookshelf and I just had this massive hemorrhage um and so it was like a very pure existential experience because Mm. there was no pain yeah because I didn't feel at all ill or mentally confused I was very clear that I was dying in the ambulance and then they stabilized me and I had a strange limbo period of I don't know four or five hours in a hospital bed after that and I could feel myself dying again and then it was suddenly a second emergency and I was rushed so quickly to the operating theatre that they couldn't anaesthetise me in the usual place. So I was actually laid on the operating table wide awake. So there were these two really pure, what I call existential experiences where I was, and the second time I was told I I would maybe die. And I was told to say goodbye to my husband and son. And it, the I mean, I think that's shocking to whoever it happens to, but I think what made it particularly like literally life-altering forever for me a, a thing I could not come back from I couldn't return to a normal life was that it happened to a person whose first 33 years had been absolutely committed to um, avoiding any kind of risk and adventure because I had a pretty traumatic childhood mm. so from the age of like kind of seven onwards my entire life was organized around keeping myself safe uh. and getting myself away from home which I did at 16 Um, so it happened and I married young I met my husband at 20 so the book is about what happens if you have a life-altering experience precisely at the point where you've become responsible for another Mm -hmm. human being and I was suddenly seized with this urge to leave my beloved husband and this baby I hadn't bonded with and go pure soul free spirit through the world this thing that the near death had given me a glimpse of this Mm-hmm. I call it this, you know, guiltless and promiscuous meeting and merging of, of souls. Mm-hmm. And um, so it made becoming a mother of a baby in a small town impossibly confining. 
And so the book's about that. It's about who I was before and who I was afterwards and how I decided to change my life within the confines of my middle age in a small town, which, you know, I think most of our stories of change are about leaving everything. Yes. Going on a big hike. I love those books. You mm-hmm. know, but Me too. Pray Love, uh, Wild. We all love them and there's a reason why. But, you know, those, those women didn't have children. Mm-hmm. And I'd been left as a small child. So I knew what that felt like and I couldn't do that to, to mm-hmm. the baby. So it was, how do you stay? So... I love this. That is just <laughs> what a great premise for a book. I mean, what a horrific thing to happen. Um, that's just such a, a distinct rupture, quite literally, that you yeah. suffered there. Um, but that's just incredible, this thinking about how you reshape something, but within the confines of what you have. And I think that's something that so many people can relate to, but particularly when you do have a child. That kind of the the reality of of how constricting that is can only hit you once you have them as well, which is yeah. sometimes a little bit too late. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it was it was that double thing because of my childhood. I'd never wanted to have children, but the only person I've ever truly loved is my husband. And we met as kind of kids, and he's always wanted to be a father. So when we were thirty, he was like, you know, when. <sighs> You've had 10 years of stability and love from me, but I've always wanted to be a father. And because I loved him so much, you know, and there were other things as the book records, there were, there were a whole series of strange incidents which converged to mean that a woman who didn't want children put forth great effort through IVF to have them for the person mm. she loved. <laughs> and then I had this near-death experience. So was, I talk in the book about um, wanting to go and trying to stay being a lathe and chisel that shaped me because like I wanted to go and I was determined to stay and it it, that's what made my life afterwards quite strange and unusual because I was under such pressure Mm -hmm. I couldn't reconcile becoming a martyr to my child there was a real iron core of selfishness in me it was like well if I'm staying then we're gonna have to find some way of balancing the scales of us because I can't be a martyr Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another big part of the book is how do you balance the need to do things of worth for yourself with giving care to others and that's something I'm, I'm passionate about um, and I, I just and well I know from listening to your podcast with with Penny that that's something mm-hmm. you care deeply about as well this you know a lot of the um a lot of the things peers who I, I very much respect but I often feel like a bit of an outsider from some discussions because some of the things women say and many of my good friends say they feel I don't feel I I don't experience imposter syndrome I don't feel maternal guilt yeah um and I don't know where you stand on on that I mean I've heard you speak a little I think that the most important thing and it's not particularly what many women would maybe back me up with but (laughs) I don't know I, I feel the same as you I quite often feel like an outsider I hated baby groups absolutely detested them mm-hmm. hated um playgroup hate going to the park I, I hate lots of the things that come with motherhood but I particularly um find this idea of having to kind of sacrifice yourself for your children just absolutely bizarre I love how you describe that um 
iron core of selfishness whereas I think we're mm. always taught that we have to be selfless when we have children but if you give up yourself then there's nothing for your children to learn from either I yeah. think they have to my granny was um wholeheartedly committed to herself but she was also wholeheartedly committed to us I don't think that those mm. two things are like mutually um exclusive she was very much a family woman but she also needed to have her career and she needed to have her things and that's absolutely fine to need to have yeah. both of those I think it's hugely important and yeah I think that you you just can't give up um yourself just because you happen to have little people as well so yeah and they grow up yeah. they grow up exceptionally quickly as well they really do and and this idea and this is another core thing that runs through the book it's an examination of like unlived lives um, lives unlived and, and I include myself very much in that my first half of life for all my kind of um, sort of CV accomplishments so I was a working class kid but I ended up with really quite stellar degree results as I think you know you did with your MA you know everything I did I did really well on paper but mm. there was no other stuff going on it was just about it was quite joyless I was just studying really hard and, and then earning lots of money and saving all of it and my husband was saying because he'd kind of gone through the miners strike so we were these two working class kids living through our 20s very much like you know people from the 1950s you know just saving huge amounts so in that sense it's not a typical narrative at all because most of our stories of people in their 20s are people struggling with excess or a sense of being untethered and we were the opposite we were completely bedded in we were completely tethered to routine um and you know I just this this business of unlived life so I was I had an unlived life my mother apart from a very brief brilliant period in her life the same all the women going back in her line the same and and you know it's no mystery it's because of the pressure of um what people say about you um and also just financial and social mm. circumstances bearing down on everybody but but that kind of maternal sacrifice however it comes about it's it's very difficult for children to carry and that's another thing which has helped me forge ahead in my life it's that Jungian idea about we all carry our parents unlived lives mm. and that's like so heavy in my inheritance and I just didn't want that for the kids I wanted them to go I wanted them to see what well, it is they say it's easy to live around me because they know I'm happy yeah and that was not how childhood felt for me I felt the weight of these women in my maternal line I think if you feel that someone, good. yeah, I think if you feel that someone's given something up for you, um, you feel as if you owe them something. Um, and that's really heavy because I, I firmly feel, you know, your kids don't owe you anything. They owe you absolutely nothing because you've had them, you made them, you decided to have them and mm. you cannot expect anything back from them. The only thing that I ever say to my kids that I expect is that they'll do their best. And that is literally it, that they'll do their best and that they won't disappoint themselves. And that's that's all. I don't want anything yeah. back from them. I have no expectations about who they're going to be or any of that. They're themselves. And yeah, that is something actually. Now you touch on it. My mom um, had, I don't know, an un... A, well, she had a very lived life, um, which impacted on her choices, I think. Yeah. And then she she had a very lived life before me. Um, so she had a very full life and then she had us very young um, and made a lot of choices. But there was always this idea of sacrifice. Um, right. 
and it's not a comfortable thing to live around I don't think so yeah, yeah that's really it's interesting you mentioned your your granny because I mean my grand didn't have well she was a, a shepherd but she was already widowed before I was born and she's like she's not alive in this book but she's completely present in it and I just found my my paternal grandmother very easy to be around because mm. she was always busy and I wanted that that kind of quality it, it doesn't even have to be a career but just that ease of being with somebody is really important and it's yeah that the, the book is full of this kind of it, it's all about forces these and, and there's like a cast of characters in my book it's like um I don't single out anybody in particular but at each point in the book like when I become a new mother there's like this almost chorus like in Greek tragedy this chorus of like um social antagonists voices of like my mm. neighbors in my street or um other mothers that I met um and I was very fortunate I, I we sort of I belong to a group of outsiders we kind of all banded together because we didn't belong to the normal group so we kind of like you know so I was quite lucky in the women I met but other people around the edges at key points in the book when I'm trying to change my life and make a life of my own in a shape that suits me you get these chorus figures that pop up kind of going oh well you know I don't know how you've got time to meet with other women or it just repeats through the book and like part of what I'm trying to do in the book is go I'm gonna do this anyway mm -hmm. and it whereas my mum's story is is tragically shaped by her fear of what people thought of her so she stayed in a mistaken second marriage for 40 years because she as she says towards the end but she knew what it was like to be talked about and she yeah. didn't want people talking about her again so to mm -hmm. live with someone from the age of seven onwards who's in an unhappy marriage is really tough but she didn't want people talking about her mm -hmm but they talked about her anyway <laughs> well that, people will talk won't they it doesn't really matter what you do you're just always on just basically you're never going to win I love that mm -hmm. idea of all this chorus of different voices because I think that is how it really it's how life is isn't it whether those voices are voices that you hear or whether they're ones that are just kind of on the ether just shaping culture mm -hmm. So how mm. did you go about, because it sounds like such a rich book and to have a whole life in a mm. book is really tricky. So how it did is. you, yeah, I, I <laughs> can't even imagine. How did you go about structuring the book? That has been the big work of the third draft is to keep the narrative pace and the kind of, because that was a choice I made early on of because I was given two equivalent book deals for very different types of books. So one would have been a book about writing because when I reshaped my life after 33, it was through writing as a performance kind of artist. Mm -hmm. So I didn't choose that. I chose the Weidenfeld offer where they very much wanted me to tell a life story. And I'd the sample material was like written in the style of fable. And we all agreed we were going to take this risk of trying to tell a story that was a whole life and that maybe had a chance of reaching between classes and generations. So it's a real risk and they were happy to take it with me. And if it doesn't work, I'll still be proud of what I've done because, and that was the thing. So I wanted to try and write a book that might reach beyond between classes because I live between a working class, rural working class and a middle class, Southern work, uh, middle class culture and also different ages. And so the way I've structured it is um, you get, some chapters at the beginning called last minutes which is when I'm almost dying and then it goes back to first life right and then I come back to life from the operation and then you get second life and the first and second life are divided into the roles I've had in them 
So like obviously second life is the longest and it's different roles I had. So obviously I begin, begin as a mother and then I become a swimmer and an outsider and an exhibitionist and then a lover of unreason because some of the choices I make go disastrously wrong because in trying to change my life and yeah. and claiming power for myself, I begin mm -hmm. to act unwisely um, yeah. because I've got this new power and I don't know how to use mm -hmm. it. I love and that. Get the, and then you get the third life at the end, which is when, in a sense, I've had three lives, I feel now. So, mm. um, so that's how I've done it. And, and it's, been, it's been really tough. And, and then there's a motif running through the book because it's meant to be like a book of fairy tale. There are like little headings where you get these stories set within chapters where they're mm -hmm. just like paragraph long stories. So they've got little titles like an Aesop's fable. So, so it's a real risk, but I feel really proud of what I've done. And I think... I think this is the only type of book I could have written because this is, and I think we're going to talk a bit about class today. And for me, I've had this really classical education in English, first person in my family to go to university. And I, I did English, so English uh, BA and MA, got first in a distinction, British Academy, you know, so on paper, very much mm -hmm. had a classical education, but it didn't really speak to me. Mm. I didn't find my people in those books. Or if I did, it was Thomas Hardy. It was all 100 years out of date yeah I and think... so for me I had to write a book that I felt had elements of the books my people might read mm. does that make sense that, it yeah. makes it makes complete sense I think it sounds intriguing and risk I think risk is the only way that you can go sometimes I'm mm. just at that stage um with the book just now and I think if you don't take the risk you'll always wonder what would have happened yeah what would have happened yeah and I, because I've, I've been watching your Instagram stories and they're fascinating because you're giving us these glimpses of this rewrite you're doing and your book was already pretty much signed off wasn't it you your editor's thrilled with it and then you had that realization hey this my mother's arc is working and is true to her character I'm summarizing and maybe wrongly but that was what I picked up but then you went but my voice has become too controlled and that's not what that's not the right Completely, I think. So I met my editor a few weeks ago and it was pouring with rain and um, we sat in Somerset House, <laughs> being total London <laughs> cliches. We sat there and we just, we were there for hours just thrashing out, you know, perfectly good book. Yeah, it is a perfectly good book. I don't want to bring a perfectly good book into the world. I want to bring something else because there's so many books. There's too many books. I want to mm. be, do something a bit different. Um, and I think because I'd edited it so much with my agent and then I'd edited it so much with her um that I just kind of feel like we've sort of beaten the hell out of the book we've taken so much um energy was off the page and also because unlike yours so yours is a life memoir and mine I was trying to take a single line in looking at growing up in a really controlled environment a controlled mm -hmm. faith um and so I was looking at that and bringing out that the parts of which I was very deep in the faith but there was a lot of my life when like you say there's total disasters like I just kind of careered from mistake to mistake to mistake for quite a long time when I was still in the faith as well and so there were these bits that are actually quite adventurous and quite pacey and full of life and I hadn't even put them in I was telling my editor things and she's like why is that not in the book and I was like in the book know. yeah I was like I don't know why it's not in the book I was like it doesn't fit with like a straight narrative and yeah I want to write something and it sounds like you've done the same thing that ultimately is quite unresolved that shows like you know it's not a 
conquering something or emerging victorious from a situation it's just that life is a bit messy a lot of the time and it doesn't you know conflict doesn't just go away it's just this endless thing so yeah that that's where I'm at and it's it's all going a bit um mad at the moment but yeah it's <laughs> it's yeah it is what it is it's good fun but like you it's very much just taking that creative risk because otherwise well otherwise you yeah. haven't done it have you so yeah exactly. it's really well, and the glimpses I'm seeing are really exciting and um and my choices are are very different in terms of what I'm, I'm trying to do so my voice even though there's some bits where things go badly wrong mine with me because I'm I'm taking this risk of trying to imagine a book that somebody like my mum could read um and she has been hearing bits of it which is tricky because she's so through the book um with me it's like for me the easiest thing I could have done was to write quite an avant-garde book with lots of fragmented passages and things because that's what I love and that's what I read um so those kind of books are so familiar to me um and I love them as a reader but in terms of choosing my story genre I chose a framework to work within although I'm pushing at it a bit like what you're you're describing I think that's what we're both doing although our subject matter is very different it's Mm. like the thing of choosing a genre working within it but then yeah deciding where you need to push into it a little bit it's been it's been fascinating but um yeah it's it's strange my husband says it's like living with Dr Manhattan from the Marvel comics I don't know if your family have found that because he says he'll come in the room and he's now got white hair you know in the time we met when we were young he had this crazy big brown curly hair and now he's got completely white hair and black eyebrows and I'll have been writing about the first time we made love as students and then he walks in the room with a cup of tea for me and he's like (laughs) you're in some other place aren't you you're seeing a different me I was like yeah I really am (laughs) yeah it's that thing of never never fully being there it's obviously just been half term and I feel like I've just not inhabited their half term in any way I'm just like I'm back in 1987 in fact, the other day I was in Paris in 1998 and then I was in London in 97 and then I had my 21st birthday in New York and I was like all in the space of one day and I was knackered. I was like, I've been everywhere, but I'd actually just been sitting at my desk. I hadn't been yeah, anywhere. Really. <laughs> I, I think sometimes writing makes our life feel so much more exciting than it actually is because you can be in all these places, but you're still just in the same room. <laughs> so. yeah. I've I've loved the experience so and so um I know you're already working on the second book and I'm genuinely not sure I will and my agent knew that when he took me on which is all credit to him this might really be my only book because when I began writing and and this was again linked to my class for me for years there's been this problem of form I've been working away on in private um and it sounds a grand thing to say, really, because I never even attempted to get published. I was just keeping diaries all through my 20s and 30s, just keeping diaries, never submitted a single piece of writing outwards, despite always wanting to be a writer. But all the time, there was this problem of form I was working away on, which was there was no book that I felt I could write that was true to my experience. Mm. So even though I wasn't even attempting it, it was something I was constantly thinking about in my diaries. And then after the near death, when I was still keeping diaries, but in a much more purposive way, I, I came across the work of Annie Arnaud, the French French writer. Yes. And I think you know lots more people know who she is now, but back in the early 
you know, 2013, she wasn't so well known. It was quite hard to get hold of her work. Fitzcarraldo are now putting a lot of it mm-hmm. out in, in the UK, but it was really hard to get hold of her books. And that was at the beginning of a breakthrough for me when mm-hmm. I understood, and I, you may know this, but for readers, uh, for your listeners who don't, um, and you know, had a very successful first novel when she was quite a young writer in France and became a sort of household name over there, but then uh, declared what she called an autobiographical pact, which was, she said, I come from, I'm, you know, I live a middle-class life now and I have a middle-class education, but I come from a working-class mercantile family. And for me, the novel form doesn't feel authentic for the Mm. stories I need to tell. I feel that I need to be and I'm paraphrasing her terribly, I'm sure. Um, but she she basically felt that the autobiographical form was some kind of thing she needed to honour and work within in order mm-hmm. to bring real stories of her people to a wide readership. Uh, and that was the beginning of a real change for me, mm. that sense of, oh, um, it's going to be tough. It's kind of probably easier to try and write a novel. And yet I also knew that was never going to happen for me. I think at that point I knew I was never going to write fiction that what I would be doing is some form of non-fiction in a novelistic way because mm-hmm. I love stories I grew up in a real rich oral storytelling mm. culture and maybe you did within your faith you know people are great talkers where I come yes. from yes yeah I think that this idea of non-fiction in a novelistic way is completely nails a lot of what I'm trying to do too and I love that because I think like the um the potential of non-fiction is huge because you're bringing stories and the pact is that what you're bringing is true um or or true through your lens that's something that I'm examining quite a lot in my book as well it's only true to me but it is still however the events happen um, you're not deliberately seeking to mislead or to obscure, exactly you know? you're, you're, yeah it's yeah truth is you understand it now that's how I work as well so yeah yeah um but bringing the kind of novelistic and all these storytelling tools to the page as well so that you're somehow um subverting the form as well and moving it forward and I love that you mentioned Annie or no because she was a huge influence um in my book too so this really? is really fascinating yeah um I never wanted to write nonfiction. I did a nonfiction uh, module in Miami and I loved it and I really liked it, but I was just like, it just, I thought it wasn't for me. And um, I disastrously tried to write a novella. Um, well, I did write it, but it was a disaster. Um, and I realized when I was reading it back, thinking, why is this not working? Um, other than the fact that it was a very strange story about a mother who locked her child in a cupboard with a goose for her childhood. And I didn't, <laughs> yeah, there was a lot. So basically there was a lot of like <laughs> metaphor at play. Um, and then I realized that I was basically writing my life, but in a novella and I had to stop mm-hmm. writing fiction just to let this story come out. But it was reading the years and the way she does it that made me think, oh, right, there's so much more potential to yeah because she does the, the years is different again isn't it because it's mm-hmm. like the collective voice isn't it yeah it's the we us yeah. and I thought that as a generational story was really powerful mm-hmm. I and felt so her, oh sorry no no on you go yeah no so and before even I was thinking of a book because as I said I was kind of, my agent kind of invited me I was sort of spotted by someone who invited me to write a book so but my big breakthrough as a writer came when I was making these diaries but in a more purposive way after the children um like really using them as like a, a sandbox or a workshop and then I came across Annie Arnaud's um 
what she calls diaries of the outside so she had these um, books called things seen and exteriors where she's like yeah. keeping a sort of psycho she's keeping like a diary of the outside of, like what she sees in the supermarket and what she sees on on the metro and things mm-hmm. and and then I suddenly had this feeling of like because I'd begun to keep these notebooks really seriously and but I was writing outside as a way of kind of performing being a writer it was like mm. well I may never write a book but I could experience the writer's life in the children's school hours so I'm going to act like a writer mm-hmm. so for me I have the absolute opposite of imposter syndrome I have never felt more myself than when I was pretending to be a writer in public Mm-hmm. It was almost like by acting it, I became yeah. it. Yeah. And I read those diaries and then I had this big creative leap and there's a backstory in the book about how it all gelled. But I was already preparing for something to happen in my life. I was being very ambitious with these notebooks and, and I was driving myself forward. And then I suddenly had this idea of what would be an evolution of Annie Ono's Diaries of the Outside? Because in them, she's still the private writer held back in reserve looking at others and writing them down okay I thought what if I declare my gaze what if I allow people to look at me Mm. and so I began writing outside on these giant rolls of paper as long as the country's oldest outdoor pool and they're called the wild patient scrolls and it was a mile of writing so I performed my private writing in public Mm. so I just changed the scale radically and I allowed people to interact with me and like put stories into the into the scrolls so it was like this like almost like an ecg of the day it was like i was just writing in in really controlled careful handwriting and it was just like this place where i could put all because i was clear it was never going to be published it was being done for the feeling of doing it and for the real here time interactions that might mm-hmm. come about it was like we're breaking through it was like it, totally ignoring gatekeepers it was like they don't exist for me I'm not trying to get published mm-hmm. I'm just going to be a writer and enjoy it and I'm going to see how many people I can meet in the time I, I'm doing mm. this and it, of course it totally transformed my life because by the time I finished them after two summers by this pool I was being asked to be published so I didn't mm. have to go through this issue of um, submitting and being declined or entering competitions it's just I already had people commissioning me mm-hmm. and you know I had a residency abroad and and then it put me in the way of an agent so it, but the point was I was going to do it anyway mm-hmm. um, but it kind of was inspired by I know's diaries and then just taking them to another level I love that how did it <laughs> change so this idea of performing being a writer and writing um but without the idea that anyone was going to read it how did it change what you were putting onto the page it well it just it just changed everything because I it I fell in love with process I just put my whole faith in process it's like if why do you why why since earliest childhood have you been oppressed by this idea of being a writer so that whatever else you achieve however much love you have however much income you you have this grit in your soul you're just not okay mm-hmm. you know there was no amount of money that was able to take away this wish to write and yet I hadn't spent much time examining why I wanted to be a writer so it was this kind of radical sort of side move where I went well it doesn't matter it's just there so deal with it do something with it um and and the fact that it was so public and yet no one actually could see it wasn't like a blog post where it can be be read it was just really freeing it was just it was just this totally freeing way of tapping into everything I'd ever been told everything I'd ever remembered and I could just write about that but then if somebody came over and spoke to me I could let it go off in a different direction Mm -hmm. 
And did so it was you... just it was like building muscles. It was like being yeah. a dancer, I suppose, mm-hmm. or a musician. All those other arts are so flexible and so public. If you want to be a dancer, you have to dance in front of other people right from the start. If you want to be a musician, you have to play music in front of other people. You get a lot of coaching. You get a lot of peer feedback. It's only writing where we assume you get good on your own mm-hmm. in a room with nobody seeing what you do. <laughs> Okay, it's quite an odd one, isn't it? So did you find that that kind of freeing feeling that you had on these scrolls, that could you maintain it when you were bringing it to the book? Yeah, yeah, Yeah. because I I spent so long physically doing it that it was it's just like a rhythm I have I had a rhythm available to me it doesn't mean the book was quick to write because I'm a very my prose is very spare um it's not particularly luxuriant or rich prose um and but but the rhythm and that that voice I have in my head was completely there yeah um Plus, I think once you've done any big thing, even if it's not publishable, like say you've worked on a novella, it's like you've logged those hours of trying mm-hmm. to solve a creative problem and just that idea of making something material. Yeah. You know, most of my life was a dream, a, a sleepwalking sort of dreams. Oh, I had all these rich dreams of what life would be. And this was the turning point with the scrolls where it was no longer about dreams. It was about making things material, however strange. Mm-hmm. And then that meant it was easier to give myself permission to to make the book. To actually go and just do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you talk, um, Um, sorry, so I was just going to say, you talk quite a lot about class and feeling that there, you know, that there weren't books that spoke to you, but yet at the same time, you've got this kind of strange experience, I suppose, of straddling classes as mm. well to a certain extent. So how Mm. has that, How's that been career-wise or informed um, your career? Well, my first career, I had a brief and very unhappy period in, in documentary television when I graduated and it didn't suit my uh, Puritan system at all. It just didn't feel like real work to me. I was getting paid huge amounts of money straight after I graduated to come up with proposals for documentaries. It was at that boom time when those kind of docu-soaps had just started. And so I was just in the wrong time at the, the wrong place really um so I was being paid a huge amount of money right after I graduated and it just didn't feel real to me so within a year and a half I got myself back to my university um Sussex University and I had quite a senior role there for like 15 years and I had planned to stay at the university till I retired so I had a job um increasing access to education Hmm. so it was perfect really it felt like Mm -hmm. really good work for me so this thing that I'd been the first person in my family and area to do I was helping other people get in. So I had a team of ambassadors going into inner city London schools and all these admission schemes that I developed. And, and that felt like a really good fit for me. And it also meant I had the freedom of the university library and my lunch hours and after work. So, you know, I was doing really important work, but I was hiding from what I really wanted to do as well. Yeah. And, but because I had a good kind of social identity and I belonged to the university community, it was, it was really easy to hide from that. And if I hadn't had the near-death experience, I, I think I would still, well, I'd still be there, I think. Mm. Um, it was a very comfortable way of living, you know, working on this lovely campus just a few miles from where I live. It was all very, very easy. I had quite an easy, secure life and I deliberately designed it to be so. So to become this outsider artist was a complete breaking of everything I'd done. 
Um, I think with you, um, sorry, your, your question is about class, wasn't it? Um, yeah, so, so yeah, I was this working class, rural working class student. I'd come up from Devon. Nobody in my town had ever left. You know, everybody stayed where they were. So I was incredibly homesick. And at the end of my first year, I met my husband. I walked into a room and there was this Welsh miner's son feeling equally bereft of his place and people and we just kind of we just clung to each other for dear life and within a month of meeting we decided we were going to do life together and we're still together now That's so sweet <laughs> so between us we just tried we hid we basically hid from the complexities and also the opportunities that our education has opened up beyond getting really well-paid jobs all the other cultural opportunities that were opened up by our education we just closed ourselves off from we just lived in books hmm. that was quite an odd existence we lived in our 20s when I wrote about it in the book I was like gosh we really were like the woodcutter and his wife or the you know we were these like little fairy tale characters hiding out in a little railway cottage in a in a sweet little county town it's very strange life how do you find the experience of um because I, I know we spoke about it a little bit of characterizing yourself like you just said you were these two characters mm. um so how have you found that for the book I mean, it, it's that's why the book is has got these fable-like elements because that is how I made sense to the world, and that's the other thing. So, I was a very young child uh, living in deep country with my mother because my father had left us. Um, I made sense of the world through the few books we had because it's you know pre-online life, you know, seventies. That was a deep dark time. You know, we didn't have many books in the house. I had my little ladybird fairy tales like Puss in Boots and the Elves and the Shoemaker and Rumpelstiltskin, and I, I learned the world from those. There was no other culture available for years, so I had this quite odd way of looking at the world, which persisted even through so again my breakthrough moment in my 30s was when I decided to start living like the characters in fairy tales not the passive ones the sort of um sleeping beauties and mm -hmm. and um and the princess and the pea but the trickster ones like Puss in Boots you know that he starts with an empty sack and he parlays it into a suit of clothes and then you know he gets the, the king's daughter in a castle for his master and and Rumpelstiltskin the ultimate and I went gosh what if I actually lived like that as an adult what if I accepted strange bargains or made strange bargains with strangers or went well I've only got this scrap of time around my children's school hours so let's see what I can parley that into and it mm. was absolutely radical it was completely life transforming to play at being an adult so it serves the book very well because these kind of earliest stories that I've learned about the world I start actively using them in adulthood to change my life by playing by completely different rules to everybody around me that's incredible because we always talk about stories as a way of making sense of the world but to map your life onto a story is something is is a different endeavor entirely as well yeah yeah and yeah. um, but so in a sense it was like my lack of my lack of cultural references as a rural working class child very late in the day became a source of creative strength when I went well that's my inheritance it's strange it's not like the it's not like the stories I read in the novels that I've, mm -hmm. I've read since I've become an adult but that's my story so I mm -hmm. need to go back there and uh, like break it down for parts like what what can I do with that strange and small you know it's like the empty sack in person as I said it's like well okay so that's all I've got so that's my those are my story elements what do mm -hmm. I build 
and I think that's the radical thing that when I'm mentoring people now I, you know I say to them let's talk about some of the stories you love and almost always even if they've got very different literary tastes from me almost always the stories that people really love the ones they go back to involve stories about the authors people and place and yet why do we find it so hard to think that our people and place could be interesting mm, I, that's a huge it's, it's, thing and I think that that's a, a massive um it's a massive problem I think as well in the publishing industry is whose story gets told whose story is seen as interesting and whose story is seen as profitable as well um so, yeah so whose stories do we let onto the page whose stories do we let yeah. get bound as well yeah and of course there's the there's, there's again there's the structural forces that exclude people and privilege certain narratives and that's something that now I have you know just a minor public profile I, I join with other writers like Natasha Carthew who's very active as a working class writer and people like Kit Dewal you know they're, they're using their very established profiles as writers to enlarge the field for others so just as at the university I worked as a first generation scholar to get other people in there's that structural work I do um, where I'm trying to enlarge the field and join with my peers to do that and to challenge the publishing industry. Um, but then there's also this personal journey that we all have mm -hmm. to go on, which is like, if I do feel structurally excluded, I've also got to examine the aspect to which I myself have internalized these ideas that my story should not be told. Yeah. And they're, they're two different things, mm -hmm. but without that first journey of, well, I've got to believe my story's worth telling, you don't have the product to push at the gates with in the first place. Exactly. So they're both equally important, but yeah, for me, and some people are not burdened by that, you know, Jeanette Winterson was not burdened by a sense that her story should not be told you know she was published at what 21 22 she got herself to oxford i mean it's an incredible journey there's always going to be those people who use their marginal status in a very emboldened and free way dh lawrence mm. was the same you know they yeah. just stormed the gates of the gates of culture very successfully um, and I was not one of those people. I was really timid. And I don't think, mm. I think they are the exceptional few. I think more of us have this long journey to accept that our stories are worth telling. Yeah. So that's why that's a big part of my mentoring is saying to people, look, make, do what I did, make a list of all the writers whose books are most precious to you. And then look at if, do they have anything in common? Mm. Now look at yourself why if if you love Laurie Lee's description of his mother if you love if you love Gorky's grandmother if you you know make a list of what you love in literature and then why is your version of that not worth telling mm. and it, it's extraordinary how emotional people can get when they just even begin to give themselves permission to tell their own version of that mm. I think because so much of what we see on the page um increasingly I think there's a lot of um very successful very middle class very white women um on the page and in bookshops and and floating around um and it can feel very claustrophobic it can feel quite well if I don't fit that then where do I fit I took a long time to mm -hmm. to think that 
I should tell my story. There was a lot of shame, I think, as well, involved in thinking, because I was very strange. I was a very strange child and had a very strange upbringing and had a very strange mm. early adulthood. Like you say, you were very, um, like, characters from a, um, from a fairy tale. And mine mm. was very much, I was very close to everything. I was shut off from the world, although I mm. kind of functioned in the world. So there was this dual thing going on. And it wasn't something that I told anybody about. So when I left um, the religion that I was brought up in, I went to uni to do my ME and I would not tell anybody. I didn't tell anyone that I didn't have a single clue about their cultural references. Like they were all standing around on the first day talking about arcs. And I literally thought it was something that Noah had been in. I was like, oh I know arcs. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I was and then I was like, what the hell is a character arc? Like yeah. I was so lost. And I didn't really have many fairy tales either growing up. I had Bible stories. And so when people mm. were talking about like narratives and things, I was just like, well I'm not gonna start telling you about what my bedtime stories were because they were whack it was just like so it took a long time for me actually to say no this is who I was this is what happened and um mm. it was actually when I lost my mom and I blogged about it on like this blog that I thought no one read but my mom did slightly which was the drawback <laughs> that was the problem okay, yeah. the people who actually did read it were the problem and I blogged about it and I had um, quite a famous publisher got in touch with me and said like that, that's really great that's a really great story mm -hmm. and just that tiny one thing um, helped me go oh right okay maybe it is the odd stories maybe it is these kind of outlying stories mm -hmm. and it totally is the outlying stories that need to be told and need to be on the page and I think that there's so much more of them kind of coming out but it's such a it's such a thing to get over this kind of shyness of oh, I was a real yeah. oddball and then letting yeah. yourself put that on the page as well it's yeah something else. there's a um I can't remember which of his two really great books so when I was consciously deciding to act like a writer and um, regardless of outcome I really marshaled a lot of texts so I didn't know any writers and artists then in my mid-30s now I do and life's a lot easier the more peers you have around you um, and Twitter has been I mean Twitter's been like my, my private school it's like my network it's how I've kind of met people across all kind of classes and, and stages of the publication journey but back then I didn't know anyone and so there were some books that became really important to me and Lewis Hyde is very well known the gift about you know art is what you, you have to give it away to make more come it's about exchange that's where art comes from um and i think it's in that one or he's also got one called trickster the disruptive imagination shapes culture or the world or something but they're two great companion books if if, if your listeners don't know them lewis hides the gift and lewis hides trickster they became really formative for me and um yeah and in them he just talks about this idea of um the best writing, he gives some examples from really famous writers like Allen Ginsberg and, and, and people. And he talks about the really, the good writing, the stuff we all want to read comes from that deep place of shame. Mm. And it comes from that deeply awkward place and that strange place where you think, I don't think any other child saw the world like me. And maybe they didn't, but it's the depth and vulnerability and art you bring to that strangeness. And then it's the act of giving that story away. That's how art gets made. And that's how culture gets changed. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's a process. Mm. And I absolutely signed up for that. I really could understand the logic of that. It gave me the courage to be 
brave and strange because yeah. he gave me enough examples of people that had become it, had become known writers. And yeah. go, okay, I'm going to go over the top with this because these people have mattered so much to me. Mm-hmm. Stories have mattered so much to me coming from a difficult childhood. They've been what good mothers and fathers, I think, are to most people. Mm-hmm. And I got that from stories from people yeah. I would never met, meet that were dead before I was even born. But I've raised myself on these people. So why should I not contribute a story that might become that for someone else? Exactly. And I think once you can do that, once you can go, it's not about how many books you sell. It's not about how many people show up for what you've made. But you are going to use all of your art and skill and practice to bring a well-intentioned story to the world. Mm. How can that be anything but good yeah you know I just don't think you can lose with that approach so of course I want the book I want my book to sell well because I want it to reach lots of people Mm -hmm. you know at its most basic level one of the lines that repeats in the book is is this thought I had when I was told I I maybe wouldn't be able to be saved which was like you know how to live how to die how to reach back with understanding even as we are going beyond the ones we love and, you know, that going beyond could be because you're about to die or it could be because you're going off to university and, you know, you're not coming back to your hometown. But fundamentally, that's the book. It's how do we do this? Mm. So what can possibly... You know, so I want it to reach a lot of people because it's about a big subject that I think lots of people need to, to get involved in. But I also have a sense that this book is definitely going to reach a few hundred people to whom it's going to matter a lot. And that has to be my benchmark also just this is crazy one of my milestones is it'll be in the British Library archive (laughs) and for someone who comes from a family where no one left any written records beyond signatures on deeds and things that's really powerful for me that's Mm -hmm. one of my big milestones of success is that I've got the stories and the language patterns of my mother and my grandmother's into something that will be in a storeroom Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the British Library that's a goal for me and particularly when it's something that's talking about undergoing your own death and coming back and repurposing a life after that, it feels important to have that longevity as well. Mm. Yeah, and for your story, because, you know, from what I've, I've picked up from reading your blogs and, and listening to your, your podcasts with, with Penny, you know, to have belonged to a faith with such a very clear an all-pervasive story of how to live oh, yeah. and, and what life is mm-hmm. for. For you to write an alternative narrative to that and have that enter, you know, this, this kind of stronghold of culture, I would find that equally meaningful. Yeah, from- I think where I got quite a lot of meaning was, obviously I kind of had to buoy myself while I was writing the first couple of drafts to send it away before I had my agent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got a lot of... Um, First of all, I read Pre-Study by Patricia Lockwood, which is just like one of the most incredible memoirs about growing up in a very strange situation. Um, What's it called, sorry? Pre-Study by Patricia Lockwood. So her father becomes a Catholic priest and her dad, well, he is, he kind of fits all the indicators of a psychopath um and it, it's just it's usual Patricia Lockwood I don't know if you've read it but she's incredible she um I will read it now yeah. yeah she has this trick of making you laugh and of making things really funny she fight she can find the absurd in a situation really well and then just as you're kind of like laughing she just kicks you in the guts really really hard um wow. 
and it's such a clever technique. She does it in her, um, no one is talking about this, her novel about the internet and about reality, really. It's a novel about reality, I would say more mm. than just the internet. But anyway, she, pre-study was brilliant because it was about belief. And for a long time, I thought that you couldn't really write about belief. No one would be interested in reading about religion. Um, but I think one of the big purposes of the book came um, later after it was announced in the bookseller and I had so many people from similar backgrounds getting in touch saying you know mm. this is so powerful that you're talking about this and that you're bringing because it's not just my reality because it's such a uniform religion it's so many other people's experience that is yeah. coming page so obviously I'm telling my own story and I'm bringing my own character and my own struggles with belief because me and belief just don't mix and I realized that that it's never mixed mm. it was just what I thought that I had to do it was a necessity but um yeah so all these other people are kind of getting in touch and saying how much it matters to them and feeling that there's these people who are looking forward to seeing themselves represented feels really important because in a way I think the way I was raised was almost like beyond class because it was such a closed system. So yeah. my mom was very middle class. Um, although my grandpa came from a mining family, his dad had been an engineer. He'd chosen all the pit props. Mm. So, and my granny's family had been doctors and landowners. And so they were really had been very wealthy. And it was like at the tail end, they kind of lost all their money. And there was this yeah. shadow of, yeah. of once being more than they were. There was a nostalgia that I was raised in. But um, <laughs> my mom kind of renounced that and was a single mom on her own when she was raising us and was very poor. And so it was a very odd thing. But we weren't, we had... I would say like a working class income but a middle class way of seeing things so mom mm, had been to yeah. uni and my granny had been to uni so I never had in my head that women couldn't go to uni or that you didn't go to uni my cousins went to uni but I was not going to go to uni because the end of the world was coming and uni was going to take me away from God um, and all this kind of oddness so it had yeah. like had no cultural references apart from two weeks of the year mum would take us on holiday and we'd go to cities and we'd go to museums and we would be mm. like we'd be allowed to see the outside world and then it would all close down again so yeah I, I genuinely don't really have a clue about what class I'm from but mm. I understand but, the but you see this is the thing it's, it's it isn't it isn't a it's not a simple it never has been a simple opposition of like mm -hmm. middle class work yeah. there's so many variants there are people that have lost land and have lost status or they've married out of their class or they've mm -hmm. married into a different race or religion or you know this is why we just need more stories we just need more this is not some quotient of oh, this is our working class story for the year because they're all different there is like so most of the when i did finally get to university most of the working most of the few working class stories that I could find um because they weren't set on my courses beyond a couple of D.H. Lawrence books they were kind of set in the industrial north it has mm -hmm. absolutely nothing to do with working class experience in the west country yeah they're completely unlike you know my um ancestors lived to great ages because they had fresh air they had access to milk and dairy products and a limited supply of good meat and you know we we didn't go without like food mm -hmm. was really rich but we were so far 
you know, from any kind of culture, whereas the northern working class people like um, Winterson and D.H. Lawrence could get themselves to like colleges. Mm -hmm. or, we didn't have that. There was no library. There was nothing. So everything, everything is so very shaded and different. And I think mm -hmm. that's what I want to see. And that's what I'm trying to do with my mentoring and the people I, I recommend to, to certain agents is we just need as many... For me, the dream would be if, if a reader in this country doesn't have to go very far back in time or very far afield from where they're born to find someone a bit like them in a book. That's my dream of publishing. I'm a Cornish, I'm, I'm a, a, a Cornish gay girl down in the bottom of, of Cornwall and I don't have to go beyond the border of Cornwall to find a story that's a little like me. Yeah, that's my dream. That's what I love about Natasha Carthew's work because, you know, she's writing as a, a gay Cornish woman and that sensibility runs through a lot of her work. Um, she's very much, I see my people reflected in her latest book, Born Between Crosses, which is about rural working class women. And yet it's slightly different. It's slightly different in Devon. Some of our, our language patterns are different. So I want to contribute a book that speaks to that region. Mm -hmm. And, and that's that's my dream it's just more and more of us are going to be speaking so I don't um on the very first page of my book faith is another big one for me I say on the very first page of my book um you know when I say that you know uh, it, the book begins with me going um did I see it what people want to know when they learn about my sudden near death at 33 yes I saw light mm. it changed me um and you know I practiced no faith before and none since but that doesn't mean that faith and issues of faith are not running through the book because yes, it's true. I don't attend a church and it's true. I, I didn't and I don't. And yet my paternal grandmother was, had this lovely childlike Methodism that was absolutely core to her way of being and chapels were a constant feature of my childhood and that rhythm of living. I'm very, I feel like it's a kind of lost paradise to me when, you know, village life was absolutely organized around chapel. Mm -hmm. and the rhythms of chapel um and you know I remember you know that's the bit in the book where I said to my editor you know that may not be your particular interest but that has to stay in the book there is this gentle inquiry about faith running through it partly because the experience of the light mm -hmm. gave me a sense of some kind of other dimension and so you know through the book it's calling me that I have these dreams of light pouring through doors of churches but I won't enter them and the mm. dream always ends with me going my place is outside and then towards the end of the book I'm actually in a church one of the few I found that I can bear to enter before running away with my hackles raised because I really resist them as, as mm. a concept and I, I've made myself I'm in there with my great granny's prayer book and I'm reading bits from it and I'm going you know where is the place of understanding where is wisdom and I'm I'm sitting there trying to figure out maybe I should just choose a church as a way of delivering use to others mm -hmm. you know, just a center to distributing care of the soul but I can't I can't let myself belong to something which to me seems so male dominated and male structured you know, so there's that running through the book. I want, I want more of all of these stories. I want mm. people to be talking about faith. I want people to be talking about sexuality, regions, dialects. We just need so much more of all of this. Yeah, I think that's the thing is how much more we need. And to see partly so that readers can see themselves reflected, but also partly, and I think this is really important, so that other readers cannot see themselves reflected that they yeah. can see something else because I increasingly find um how many times do I need to nod along with a book 
how many times do I need to see myself reflected? Because how many times do we look in the mirror? Feels like so much yeah. of life is a reflection at the moment. Social media, you choose what I you want to see. I love that point. I think that's so powerful. So I had a, a pretty much I had a break. So I, I created this public life for myself and it went really well. And then 2018, I had a bit of a breakdown and I just hid in my car up on Feral Beacon during the children's school hours. And I decided I was going to read the Nobel laureates. Like one of each of their books so like I was basically stuck in one small place I felt like my life had failed but the least thing I could do was read all these different people mm -hmm. and so I read Japanese writers Chinese Eastern European women Russian stuff you know I, would, I just took myself all around the world in these and I could not see myself in any of those narratives and it was the most freeing powerful thing yeah. I'd ever done it was just like it was getting free of the British mindset mm -hmm that small island thing um one of them and directly related to your point so i think that's important as writers we need to both be fully able to believe in the use and purpose of our own story however small and strange mm -hmm. and at the same time i think we need to be reading widely beyond our genre yeah. widely beyond our country widely beyond our own sets of values and norms I think mm -hmm. it's both you need to go really deep and close with your own values while also ranging really and I think that's where really strong and interesting sensibilities emerge from and I think one of the most powerful things I ever saw was it does the rounds on social media rightly a lot was um when when a white interviewer said to Toni Morrison you know are you going to have like more white characters in in future books or you know and, and she just looks at her and she goes, do you know how powerfully racist that question is? <laughs> I'm not writing this book for white people. I'm not writing this book for black men. I'm writing this book for black women. <laughs> um, you may get something out of this book, but it's not written for you. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. written for these people. And I think that's really valid that we write for a, we can't write for everyone. No. I think we need to write for certain groups. And then, of course, the purpose of, as a woman, as a working class woman, almost all the books I read in my life up until a certain age were not written for me. And I still got stuff from them. Well, I get so um, much, I think, from books that are not necessarily written by me. I read, I always had predominantly read male writers. I really like, I'm always drawn to books um, written by men. And I think that was a big driver when I was younger to wanting to write wasn't so much because I wanted to bring women's stories whatever they are because I don't believe mm. women's stories it's ridiculous but I wanted to compete with the boys um mm. I wanted to be like well I'll show you and I think it was because I was raised my mother for all her um oddness raised me just to believe that I was just the same there was never any because it was just her so she would change fuses she'd change tires she'd decorate the house she did yeah. she just did everything so yeah. I just thought that you did everything so I was reading men from a really young age um and I was like well I'm gonna be as good as you I can be as clever as you I can write like you I can do this and I was really determined mm -hmm. to kind of be a a woman in in a men's um literature dominated world yeah. um so yeah I think that's the thing is it's just stories isn't it I, I don't think it necessarily matters where you get your stories from so long as you're making sure that you're kind of you know there isn't I still don't believe that a book has a moral purpose or should have a moral purpose a book is mm. um 
but so long as you're using it to try and get a glimpse into other worlds and see beyond your own world and see into somebody else's and as a writer if you're bringing your world then you're giving readers the chance to do that because there's a world they are bound on the shelves and they can choose if they pick it up and if they can enter it yeah so it's that thing of being a reader and a writer isn't it yeah although I mean to be clear we're both writing books that are based very directly and avowedly on our lives and of course and I don't have that that talent for uh, writing fiction or doing historical fiction or um fantasy that's I love all those genres but I I myself can't my imagination doesn't work like that it's very tied to the real um I don't think you know demonstrably you don't have to write directly about your own experience Uh, but I just think as any creative person being very clear on who you are matters Mm-hmm. that whether then you're writing sci-fi set in a completely different time and place or whether you're doing historical romance I, I just don't think it can hurt as a creative person to be very clear on the ground you stand on that that Faulkner idea of your postage stamp of, of of your land where you come from I don't think you have to write about that ever I don't think that has to be what you're tied to but I don't think it can hurt to have that kind of solid ground that you can stand on mm. that you can return to after your forays out into public life or in your books you know and I I think and I don't think modern life makes it easy for people to get in touch with that very small space because the nature of social media is breadth and is Mm -hmm. proliferation of information so spending time away and I don't I think I've heard you you like me don't subscribe to there was a time in my life where I did make myself write every day because I was trying to make myself be a writer and that was the only proof I had that I was one was if I wrote every day and it had to be early even though that's not my time to write really creative it's not when I work best but that's all I had was that early morning session like so many mothers um but I don't think I genuinely don't think it matters when and how often as long as there is some commitment to some practice however it works for you as an individual to going away from things and just spending time with your own your own yeah your own memory store your own place that you've come from I think yeah I just think it gives you a strength to your work and that means you can survive all the knockbacks and silences and you know silence important um I think I mean I'm um I didn't write yesterday or the day before because of the vaccine because I had my second vaccination then oh, right. um <laughs> it just was quite an no. odd experience so I've been quite um uh-huh. yeah it's been quite odd so I, I deliberately didn't work although I have lots of strange notes on my phone um to go back to but yeah I think it's just I think it is important to kind of keep like you say it's a muscle and if you don't keep doing it um I just have this kind of semi-neurotic, completely neurotic fear that if I stop, then I won't be able to start again. It's like if you're walking along and sometimes when I'm walking, I think about walking and then I'm like, if I think about walking, I'm going to fall over. And then (laughs) I have to stop myself thinking about walking Mm because I won't be able to do it anymore. And it's the same with writing. I think, right, if if I stop, then I just won't be able to do it. So I just kind of keep doing it whether or not that's I don't know uh, yeah at the moment anyway I'm just keep doing it and then I might use all my words up I'm also quite worried about that bit and then I might just have to go away and do nothing for a few months which would be nice but we'll see so yeah but it's just that um yeah commitment and just trying can but I think what you said about silence is really important because um sometimes if I don't 
right I have like a silence in my head I have like an absence of the ability to think I think uh yeah that yeah it's where I think best is when I keep sort of daily notes and that has stopped for me for a while so I'm not actually writing anything at the moment I mean not in a blocked way there's just nothing I want to say I'm almost mm-hmm. sick of words at the moment yeah but but it is how I experience life best so in that sense I'm missing it I'm aware of an absence and I'm not worried about it at the minute but it, I know it's better for me when I'm putting things down on paper mm-hmm. um yeah because yeah. I work nice on the paper idea. like I do, my I just I'm quite I'm just not very eloquent if it's not on the page because and the great thing mm. is is you can like you can appear eloquent on the page because you can like rewrite it 50 times until you get it right and then when you have to say something in real life and then you say it and then you go and go oh shit should have said it this way I should have done it that way or I could have <laughs> done it that way and you're constantly revising so yeah there's something about the page but um I I just think your book sounds fantastic I think it sounds um like something I've never read before which is very rare that I can hear a book described and think well that sounds new that sounds different I can't wait thank you in one way it's deeply old-fashioned um somebody was asking me recently who is it like and because that's often how we talk about books Mm and and uh, you know who is it like in terms of your contemporaries and and not because it's special or or you know but I thought I said it's actually quite old-fashioned I you know if people read it and they sense the kind of quality of Thomas Hardy or D.H. Eliot um D.H. Lawrence or um Laurie Lee it's not I mean you know I mean this is a beginner work for me but no it is it's meant to have a feeling of familiarity and be quite old-fashioned but I think the things I'm saying are quietly radical you know in the sense Mm. of in the way that your work is about what women are and what women can be but it's within quite an old-fashioned type of story I think so but yeah it's a risk but I'm glad I've taken it so I'm really looking (laughs) forward to it um and so when's it out is it February next year is that right yeah third of February 22 but what I would love if anyone's listening is um for me again this is a working class thing I I want the book to be useful already to people I want it to be a way of other people getting their words um into print or online for the first time so I have this um newsletter um so I share each month I share a short extract from the book to one of the themes and then I invite people to write 250 words or less in return on that theme and that you can interpret it really broadly and then I move it onto actual proper book site so it goes from Substack over to thecureforsleep.com which is the book's website and so people are able to see their words online Um, and for some people that's the first time they've ever sent some work away Mm -hmm. and so it's really powerful for them because I want them to have that thrill because my first publication was a short locally published online piece but it changed my life and I want people to feel I'm a safe place for them to send their stories um I just wanted the sense that then whatever happens to the book next year it will have already had a purpose in the world yeah. so that's really easy to find but it's um tanyashadrick.substack.com but you can just do a google search for my name and you'll get to it really quickly don't worry we'll put the link up in show notes yeah. as well so that people can find that and that they can yeah. can um, I'd love yeah I love getting stories through and what people are sending, it's just hair-raisingly good and moving what people are sending mm. through. So That's a lovely Thank idea. Thank you so much, Ali, for inviting me along. I love your podcast. You and Penny together, you're a great team. <laughs> Thank you for having you. 
thank you for having me thank you for joining us it's been <laughs> thank you very much thank you thank you you've been listening to not too busy to write with ali miller and penny windsor you can find show notes including the best ways to get in touch with us as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com and if you're enjoying the show don't forget to subscribe and please go ahead and leave us a little review it really helps others to find the podcast you can find ali on instagram at ali underscore miller underscore writes and penny at penny Windsor. music and editing is by ewan miller mcmeekin <laughs>